Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi guys, Dr. Santos here, coming at you from my lab. Hello and happy holidays. It's your friendly local ER doc, Dr. Ward. You can't can't not say the (laughs) The MacGyver of ER medicine. That's right, I'm the MacGyver of the San Francisco Bay Area. Oh, I like that. MacGyver of San Francisco Bay. You know, Ward, I'm actually in your neck of the woods this week, recording from... Frostbitten Eureka. Oh, it's beautiful up there. <laughs> it's also it's cold. It's cold as heck. Yeah. <laughs> I was really just, dis- I thought, okay, I'll take a contract job out in California and I'll, it'll be nice and warm and I can get away from Chicago winter and that's all a great big nope. <laughs> just... Call it beyond the wall here from San Francisco. <laughs> like that, that wall in, oh gosh, what's that wall in Game of Thrones, Claude? I think it's just called the wall. <laughs> okay, <there you> <laughs> yeah, I'm not an advocate. Don't be trying. Inspired by the wall and by my current experiences here, I figured we should cover an important topic going into winter, which is, of course, frostbite. Yes. <laughs> it's a big problem. We did our sunburns and, you know, protecting your skin during the summer. During a past episode, everyone please go listen to that right now. We'll wait. And now we must address the incoming cold. Because just like the memes, winter is coming. Well, it's it's also relevant to traveling. If you happen to be climbing Mount Everest or anywhere in the Himalayas or anywhere at all in uh, high altitude, this could be one of the problems that, um, that you face. And you don't just have to be climbing. In fact, if we look back... 
into the history of frostbite, the very first recorded cases had nothing to do with climbing, but more to do with fighting. And this is another perfect example of tying in our travels with our medicine, because some of the earliest recorded cases were, of course, in Russia. <laughs> because where else would they be? <laughs> you gotta do it now, in Russia. Right. So the actual earliest documented cases of frostbite were recorded by a French physician, Monsieur Dominique Jean Larey, who was the greatest military doctor of all time, served under Napoleon, so he took part in 25 different campaigns, developed the very first ambulance system in medical history, and he had a bunch of techniques in his journals which included descriptions of tetanus, a battlefield triage system, which we've talked about in, uh, well, several of our previous episodes, including yeah. disaster medicine. He talked about hemorrhage control and amputations. In fact, this guy loved his amputations. He huh? loved his amputations so much that thanks to a ridiculous amount of practice, he could amputate a leg above the knee in three minutes flat and disarticulate a shoulder in 17 seconds. <laughs> that is impressive. It's pretty cool. <laughs> now... It should be said that this skill, it's a little bit interesting, this skill, because it did have to do a lot with, in those days, we didn't have those quick, you know, um, bone saws. You had these giant saws. So some of it had to just do with plain old skill of, you know, how fast can you zzzz with one of those saws like that? I picture him chopping wood just like in one fell swoop coming down. Yeah, I'm sure that's how the battlefield <laughs> surgeons are like, what were you doing? Oh, I was lumberjacking today. <laughs> Different just times. Lumberjacking it all over the place. Different times. <laughs> Different times. Different times indeed. So during Napoleon's campaign into Russia in the winter of 1812, as documented in War and Peace, he put forth the very first description of frostbite in his journal, which hasn't really changed much from how we describe it today. You know, he says the natural heat is absorbed and a discharge of caloric takes place, the pores close, and the capillary vessels fall into a state of contraction with the fluids condensed and flowing more slowly. So during Napoleon's Moscow campaign, Lorraine noted that part of the problem was soldiers would very often come back from a hard day's battle they would all sit around the fire, rewarming their frozen feet and hands at night, only to be refrozen the next day. So it's a freeze-thaw-refreeze cycle that led to a lot of increased tissue damage and necrosis. Oh wow! Now, Ward, have you seen have you seen a lot of frostbite injuries in in your tenure? Uh, it's actually one of these um, conditions that we're trained to treat. Um, it's it's. Um, it is part of emergency medicine. On the other hand, I, I currently work in San Francisco, and prior to that, I worked in New York City, where there's just not that much frostbite. Certainly not the thaw-freeze-thaw-freeze. Thaw, freeze. Maybe, as we, I'm sure we'll talk about later, there are four stages of frostbite. I have treated what's tantamount to, you know, this first stage, minimal, superficial frostbite. And that, that treatment is relatively simple. You just warm those fingers up or you know whatever body part that's exposed warm it up and do not let it go through these thaw freeze thaw freeze cycle now this is a problem that particularly plagues the homeless and people who live right. in cold climates such as russia canada antarctic in fact not related to this but i know buzz aldrin was just evacuated from i believe antarctica he was yeah, yeah. he he posted on his social media and everything that guys everything's okay 
I uh, just almost died. Little little humble brag. Don't <laughs> frostbite. You mean an ice tan? <laughs> Leray believed that frostbite was actually the polar opposite of burn injuries, and he employed cold as an ally to combat frostbite. So rather than using the extreme heat of the fire as treatment, at least in part because these frozen toad soldiers wouldn't be able to feel their flesh burning, he advocated a slower rewarming technique inspired by the way he saw Russians thawing frozen fish. He looked at his French soldiers and said, these guys are frozen half to death. He took a look at these French soldiers and said, You know, I bet the best way to treat them is the same way Russians take their fish to market, using thawing frozen fish, using either a friction massage of snow and mm -hmm. ice, or by immersion in cold water. But sadly, I, I don't believe feet and fingers were as receptive as the flesh of Flanders. No, and, you know, we were in um, Siberia, and we saw what happened to those Omu that were uh, treated by Russian fishermen. <laughs> they were a pretty leathery, <laughs> wrinkled, dead-looking bunch of flesh and bones. If somebody offers you a Russian massage, no, don't no. take it. And that's, I'm, that's, this isn't even 2020 hindsight. I mean, that's just, this, that seems not the best idea. And indeed, this is not <laughs> the treatment of choice for any type of any type of um, any type of frostbite injury. But it was the very first treatment, and. And it did have some good points in that he said, well, we shouldn't use the dry heat of a fire. Let's let's massage with snow and ice. So he was a little bit off, and that was pretty much the only treatment for frostbite from, I'd say, the early 1800s until about 1956, when a Dr. H.T. Merriman, who sounds like a jolly guy, oh, yeah, he sounds like a fun guy. working for the Public Health Service in Alaska, began to question how how efficient this gradual rewarming was. He took it a step further and said, you know, rather than use gradual rewarming, let's do rapid rewarming. And instead of using cold water, let's use warm water. And he found this to be a lot more effective in promoting circulation. So a lot of the advances in frostbite-based treatment came from Alaska. And there was, in fact, another Alaska doctor, Dr. William Mills, who also helped to promote these same techniques in the 60s, and that's finally when we changed medical opinion from treating frostbite like frozen fish to market to treating frostbite like a treatable medical condition. I can't believe it took almost 100 years for them to advance to that point, but I hey, I'm glad they did. In the 80s, a plastic surgeon, Dr. Robert McCauley, developed a specific scientific protocol for frostbite treatment based on all the available research done from the 1800s up through the current day, and his treatment does remain the gold standard to this day. But apparently, Dr. Leray's influence from Napoleon's times can still be seen, and there are still lay people who believe that rubbing snow on frostbite is the best way to treat it. In fact, no, oh, no, no, that's true. Today? Yeah. In fact, I just read a chapter out of our emergency medicine text, and it specifically mentions that this common practice or this old belief of rubbing snow and ice to gradually relieve frostbites is a big no-no. Don't do it. It will likely cause more tissue injury. <laughs> <laughs> obviously. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Obviously, obviously, obviously now, now yeah. but... Right. No, I, so, I, I do understand that. I, I understand what they're saying and that you think... 
you know some things at you know a particular point in time. Yeah. Well, look, we used to Obviously. use mercury and ether and all sorts of other crazy things too. So not that's yeah. True. <laughs> Got a cough? Try some heroin, <laughs> and that okay. works beautifully. By the way, opiates relieve cough very, very well. Yeah, then you just have a crippling drug addiction, but your cough totally is gone. gone. <laughs> <laughs> but I won't be. I won't be going into my favorite Victorian time period this episode. You'll all be spared from that until, well, until our next episode, when I'm sure I can find another excuse. Before we start talking about what frostbite is and how to treat it, we should probably define it, uh, because I don't. I don't know what most people think of when they picture frostbite, aside from maybe blackened ears, toes, or fingers falling off. So the the literal definition for frostbite, which is the most common type of freezing injury, is the freezing and crystallization of fluids in the interstitial and cellular space. And this is as a consequence of prolonged exposure to freezing temperatures. So it's it's mostly a preventable injury, and when we say freezing temperatures, below negative 10 degrees Celsius, any tissue that feels numb for more than a few minutes can become frostbitten. Now, I'm gonna quick, quick I'm going to give you guys a quick quiz. Negative 10 degrees Celsius is how much in Fahrenheit? Oh boy, Let's, yeah, it's sub zero. I'm gonna say uh two, two degrees. Price is right rules. Lower. So, do you guys know the quick, the quick conversion between Celsius to Fahrenheit? Yes, you type it in Google and if I... <laughs> 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 okay. well, well, let's answer. say let's say you're somewhere where you do not have Google. What you can do is you take the the temperature in Celsius, you double it, and then you add 32. Oh, because okay. Because the conversion well, is nine gets it. in 32. Gotcha. So, gotcha. Okay. So negative 10 degrees Celsius double is negative 20 plus 32. Negative 10 degrees Celsius is equivalent to approximately 12 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, that's that's a pretty nice way to think about it. There's there's a similar trick going back, but I don't need to do it because most of the world uses Celsius, and it's only here in America we have to convert to Fahrenheit. <laughs> negative 10 degrees Celsius or 12 degrees Fahrenheit is what a standard day is in Chicago through most of January. That's true. Any tissue that's numb for more than a couple minutes or exposed can be frostbitten. So the pathophysiology is... Now, Ward, like I said, I know you're trained in this, so I'm, I'm going to defer to you, but how how does frostbite actually work? I could nerd out and give you the some of the physiology, but you may be able to explain it better. Well, frostbite is essentially microscopic tiny little ice crystals form. Even before that, your your circulation slows down because, you know, your core temperature walking around, it's usually going to be normal, 37 degrees Celsius. However, our body parts rely on warm blood being pumped to these body parts to, to, to keep warm and to keep functioning. Way before negative 10 degrees Celsius, I believe even positive 10 degrees Celsius, when it reaches that point, our circulation slows down in our capillary beds. And these fingers and toes are no longer getting that warm blood. When it gets cold enough, microcrystals form outside our cells, and that causes a lot of damage. But when the crystals form inside cells, that's when irreparable harm happens to these cells and they die. So you can imagine your blood acts as your own internal 
heating system. The Mac, like, you are quite literally hot-blooded, so <laughs> when you are in an, a temperature that is very hot, your vessels will vasodilate, meaning they'll widen, allowing more heat to flow through and disperse. And when you're cold, you will vasoconstrict, trying to keep all of that heat as close in as possible. And this is important, especially in the skin, because the skin is able to lose heat a lot more easily than it can gain heat. In another way, you can always put more clothes on, but you can only take so many off. Humans usually are able to adapt to heat much better than to cold, which is why even in the hottest deserts of the Sahara, you still find tribes roaming around, but the only people in the Arctic are scientists or Santa up at the North Pole. We miss you, Santa. Come back soon. <laughs> vasodilation or vasoconstriction is controlled by direct effects of the sympathetic nervous system and vascular tone. So let's look at some of the temperatures that we begin to see these at. So at 15 degrees Celsius, or about 60 degrees Fahrenheit, that is the maximal amount of vasoconstriction. The thinnest your vessels can make themselves to conserve that heat and blood, and blood flow will be measured at about 20 to 50 milliliters per minute of flow. 60 degrees, right? Not, not that cold. It's a California winter, but for most of the rest of the world, not terribly cold. Below 15 degrees, or below 60 Fahrenheit, vasoconstriction will be interrupted by rhythmic bursts of vasodilation. They'll occur about three to five times per hour, they'll last five to ten minutes. These bursts are more frequent and longer in individuals who are used to cold weather, which makes them less prone to frostbite. Now you might be asking, well what does that look like if you have your vessels get very thin and then they will flare out and widen to bring heat to you? That is a physiologic description of shivering. That's what shivering is. It is your vessels basically spasming to constrict and dilate in an effort to bring nice warm blood to areas that need it. Yeah, exactly. It's a physiological response. Your body knows it's cold, and it's one of the ways we conserve our core temperatures. We don't die of hypothermia. At 10 degrees Celsius, or about 40 degrees Fahrenheit, you get something called neuropraxia, which results in the loss of sen some sensation to your skin. That's that pins and needles feeling when you've been out in the cold and your fingers go numb, and then you come back in, they start to warm up, and you have that like, oh, gosh, my foot's asleep, or that pins and needles tingling type of sensation is known as neuropraxia. Below zero degrees Celsius, or 32 Fahrenheit, any kind of negligible cutaneous blood flow uh, is going to allow the skin to freeze, and your skin temperature will begin to drop by about half a degree per minute. So smaller vessels freeze before large vessels, and the veins, or the venous system, freezes before the arterial system because the blood pumping through your arteries is going at much faster rates. That's when you no longer get that warm blood in your fingers and outside of uh, the, the mo outermost layers of your skin. Santos, you're our, our resident scientist. Talk us through the epidemiology. Who is going to be most at risk for suffering from frostbite injury? Right. So I always love to think of my little kitties first because, hey, so uh, I'm, I'm going to think of children. These are going to be vulnerable individuals because you have just plain and simple a small body surface area. So you're going to be able to turtle up. You can do the best that you can, but 
you will just be stuck with, you know, you only have X number of surface area and you have a small body volume. So if you don't get warm soon, very, very fast, you're going to die. The next group of people is the elderly. The same kind of reason, except that you've lost volume, you've lost a lot of fat, more than likely, and you've lost the physiologic mechanisms to be able to warm yourself up. This is also true with tiny, tiny infants. Um, they can't shiver, so they're very, very vulnerable as well. Any other metabolic disorder where you can't raise your body temperature, or if you have a musculoskeletal disorder where you can't shiver properly, will also make you quite vulnerable to freezing. I think the kids and elderly are certainly physiologically uh, more at risk for freezing injuries. The biggest group of people who actually sustain those injuries, I suspect, and just coming from experience, are probably going to be maybe the elderly, but definitely the homeless, and people who are right. not in the right state of mind to protect themselves, like people who are on drugs or alcohol, or people with psychiatric disorders. And our large urban centers, such as San Francisco and New York City, where I used to work, the homeless have the trifecta of now that I come to think of it, the only people who I've ever treated who had freezing <clears throat> injuries or hypothermia, to, for that matter, have been, unfortunately, the, uh, the homeless. I think you put up a very good pitch for us to take care of our more disadvantaged friends out there. You know, anytime you are just exposed to the cold and you can't protect yourself, that's when you will certainly run into this problem of... of hypothermia in a hurry. So if you can't get inside, if you can't get to a warmer, anything like that, you will be at high, high risk to freeze. And the other two groups obviously being our military and um, people who are doing winter sports and extreme sports like mountain climbing. Let's talk about what some of the symptoms of frostbite are. If you're getting it and you're not blackout drunk, how will you know? So the first symptoms, and they're progressive. Obviously, you're going to notice coldness, stinging, burning, throbbing. Again, if you've ever gone skiing or to Alaska or to a glacier, you've probably felt some degree of or walked around in Chicago any time in the winter. Uh, that'll yeah. do it. Uh, that'll do it. <laughs> that will do it. Um, you get numbness, so you'll get coldness, stinging, burning, throbbing. Over time, things will come numb, followed by a complete loss of sensation. Then you lose fine muscle dexterity, clumsiness of fingers. You can't really text well once it starts dropping into, you know, the single digits <laughs> of temperature. These are your nerves shutting down. Then you get loss of large muscle dexterity, such as difficulty walking. So now you're trying to text and all of a sudden you're slipping all over the place even when there's no ice around. Numbness over the affected area is usually the initial symptom of frostbite. After you've rewarmed, and we'll talk about rewarming in a little bit, you may notice severe throbbing and hyperemia or vast return of blood flow to that area can begin and it can last for weeks. A lot of patients who have suffered long-term damage from frostbite will complain of paresthesias or these phantom sensations. Uh, long-term symptoms include a sensitivity to cold, sensory loss, and hyperhidrosis or excessive sweating. This is all where nerves which control your sweating, controls pain sensation, they get frayed and kind of confused, if you can believe it. 
there's there's a number of different classifications and frostbite injury itself can be divided into three three zones. There's the zone of coagulation, which is the most severe and distal region of injury, and when you have that, that's irreversible tissue damage. There's the zone of stasis, which is in the middle, and that's that's a lot of severe tissue damage that may have some reversible components, and the zone of hyperemia, which is the closest to the surface, is the least damaged region, and usually you can expect recovery that will occur sometimes even as soon as 10 days. But Ward, why don't you tell us what are the different kinds of, of frostbite? Frostbite, kind of like our French surgeon from back in the Napoleonic times, we talk about we like to grade things. So there are first, second, third, and fourth degree injuries, kind of like burns. First degree injury is characterized by just partial skin freezing. Only the superficial layer is involved where, where there's erythema, mild edema, and it's just like burns, first degree does not have blisters. There's a lack of blisters. And you may feel tingling and burning followed by a robbing sensation. And like, you know, like Dr. Josh mentioned, prognosis is usually excellent when you rewarm it. Pain and hyperemia and redness, but usually there will not be permanent damage. Now, second degree injury is full thickness skin freezing. You know, form a lot of edema over the next few hours. And sometimes blisters will happen filled with, filled with fluids rich with inflammatory molecules like thromboxane and prostaglandins. And the blisters can form within 6 to 24 hours. And they can even, more of them sometimes form after you rewarm. And not only do you feel numbness and tingling in this burning sensation, you might feel some deeper aching and throbbing. Prognosis, surprisingly, for Second degree injury is usually good. You might get some eschars, meaning, you know, black and dead tissue, but usually you're recovered. Third degree injury is goes beyond just your skin and goes into the subdermal plexus. And that's when you start getting these blood blisters, hemorrhagic blisters. And that usually happens again after rewarming. During the active, you know, when your when your limbs are still, so to speak, frozen. You don't generally see that, but when you rewarm it, these blood blisters come out, and patient might complain feeling that whole extremity feels like a block of wood with this deep, aching, burning, shooting pains, and that prognosis is not quite as good. And then there's fourth degree injury where there's a complete, essentially, you have a complete frozen finger, you know, hand, and that is not nearly not as painful. Because all the nerves are dead, the skin is mottled and non-blanching, and eventually, whatever that's involved, whether it's a finger, it's a hand, it's a nose, it's an ear, turns into this deep, dry, black, mummified, and the prognosis is generally uh, quite bad. For that tissue. And I'm, glad, yeah. and I'm glad you brought up mummification, because, you know, when we're talking about these black studies, well, of course, my first thought was Mr. Freeze from Batman, <laughs> who is described was described in the comics as somebody who does have these sort of black stubby fingers and and he's bald and has to wear that cryogenic suit and this does bring up you know even the people today who were very excited about cryogenics thus far we have yet to successfully thaw anybody out demolition man style yeah um, unfortunately we can't we can't go stalloning yet people right and and this is where a lot of these similar things that we're talking about in terms of superficial and deep injuries and frostbite ones are all very relevant, not only to Batman villains, 
but also to long-term stasis for space travel. We're going to have to find some way to put ourselves into a literal cold sleep, and we're going to have to figure out how to thaw people out from these cryogenic things that everybody is so gung-ho about, and these are the kinds of injuries that we're going to have to deal with. So, as, as Dr. Ward said, superficial injury precedes deep injury, and it only involves the skin and fat layers. Um, and that's, you know, the skin can have this white mottled appearance and look a little bit blue, and that's sort of how we think of Mr. Freeze. Whereas deep injury involves everything, and then the the skin doesn't roll. It, you, it loses its, its flexibility. It becomes very stiff. And you get those mummies, and some of the earliest mummies we found were not in Egypt. They were actually in Chile. Ah! <laughs> Pun intended. Um, they, <laughs> they were in Chile, they were in Peru, up in the Andes, where these cold, cold areas sucked all the, the moisture and sort of left these humans as blackened shells of themselves. The ancients did love sarcasm, um, I must say. <laughs> frostbite is not the only list of cold injuries, and there's a couple others that deserve at least an honorable mention, um, and one that I had never even heard of by name, but I recognize. So did you know a totally different disease than frostbite is the disease of frostnip? Which <laughs> sounds cute, yeah. right? It is. Ooh, well, it's just a little nippy. There's yeah. a song about it. Yeah so, yeah, so Jack Jack Frostnip. That's yeah. Jack Frost nipping at your nipping nose. Nipping at Frostnip your nose. Frostnip, yeah. <laughs> Frostnip, real condition. Real condition, and it's blanching of the skin with a little bit of transient numbness and paresthesia that does resolve with rewarming. So the difference between Frostnip and Frostbite, aside from the adorableness of the name, is that in Frostnip, you're not getting any ice crystal formation in the tissues, and you're not at risk for tissue loss. This is, you know, the tips of your nose really will be chilly when you come in. That's why we wear earmuffs and why you wear face masks. But in frostbite, you're actually getting freezing and crystallization of the blood in your veins or the fluid in your cells. And that's why it's so much more dangerous. Now, Jack Frost one that we do <laughs> French kissing your nose. <laughs> yeah, it, he just comes up and licks it like some sort of, you know, ice right. puppy. <laughs> oh, Ice Puppy would be oh, so cute. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, we're going to have to just delay the rest of this episode so we can talk about Ice Puppy. What kind of what kind of puppy would an Ice Puppy be? Well, I, I feel like he'd be like a little beagle puppy. Well, yeah. I feel like it would be a little Malamute, oh, like a fuzzy little... Or like a husky, or, maybe? Yeah, those okay. ice-cold blue eyes. and you know. oh, and hus- oh, yeah, and they come up and they lick you and just like, oh my gosh, my nose is freezing. So this you'll still see today. One of the conditions you will not see as often, uh, unless you are, say, a soldier in the 1900s, <laughs> is trench foot. Yeah. And that sounds trench- awful. Trench foot. Well, for those of you who are... This didn't happen because of the cold in this particular movie, but if you guys remember Dances with Wolves, that was a, a type of trench foot where he guys is losing his foot. Yeah, there were no ice puppies in there. No, no. Um, the, the wolves, the wolves he was dancing with, less fun. Less, and, way less fun. And trench foot results from prolonged exposure to a wet but non-freezing cold environment, and there you get 
some peripheral nerve damage, but again, there is no ice crystal formation. So this damage, you get a lot of pain, you may lose pulses in, in the feet or fingers, you get very pale skin, you can even get some degree of paralysis. Now, this is a reversible condition if it's diagnosed and treated early, and people with trench foot have a much better prognosis than patients with frostbite. If you remember, the two of the movies that probably had some early trench foot were the Leonardo DiCaprio one where he kills a bear or gets raped by a bear. I don't, I don't remember the exact <laughs> There was a bear involved. And also the gray with Liam Neeson, where it's Liam Neeson fights winter. In both, of fought winter. in both of those cases, they're wandering through sort of these frozen streams. And, you know, you have to worry is hypothermia, which very often accompanies frostbite. But anytime you're in a wet but non-freezing cold environment. So if you just were to go wandering down, say, the Chicago River right now, when it's still, you know... 40 to 50 degrees, you could develop trench foot. And the reason it's called trench foot is we saw it most in the trenches of World War I, where this muddy, kind of chilly water that the soldiers would have to stand in for hours and it would seep into their boots. Or, you know what? It's the extreme version of wet socks. Yep. yep. There. And, and the key to this I is prolonged. It. So that's why, that's why it happens to trench, you know, people who are marching along in trenches. Because these soldiers are in at war for months and years and they're not really getting the relief that I would get if I walked into the Chicago River and I would be freezing my butt off but as soon as I come home I take my boots off. So Frostnip is ice puppy ice puppies and trench foot is you know extreme wet socks. There you go. The last one on the differential is chillblains or pernio, which is less severe than trench foot and is just these very painful inflammatory skin lesions caused by chronic, repeated exposures, again, to damp, non-freezing cold temperatures. And you get a lot of localized swelling and redness. Like you said, they, this ha tends to happen in cold, damp areas where there's just long periods of exposure. We don't really have that here in the States nowadays anymore, fortunately. The UK and Scotland do, do report a spike in chillblains around this time of year, parts of Canada, and in the U.S., uh, Seattle or Washington, the, oh, yeah. the Pacific Northwest right. does get it because you do have damp, moist areas which are non-freezing but still quite cold. And I believe for chillbanes, when uh, patients are recovering, um, they get this awful, itchy, pruritic sensation as well as this burning, tingling paresthesia. Exactly. So pernio, you can you can recover from, and you'll recover from it as long as 12 hours after the injury. Uh, trench foot, you may have some permanent damage, but you will not lose any limbs. And frostnip is just like, oh, look at that. It's it's chilly, and now it's not. <laughs> um, but in all three of these, again, the clear difference is that frostbite actually does cause crystallization of the fluids in your body, and that is what is biting into you. Right. The other three are so, non-freezing. How do we take care of this? Um, well, it depends on how uh, how extensive the injury is and how what level of injury you have. So like I mentioned earlier, there is a grading system and we go from first degree injury to second degree injury to third and fourth degree. Treatment depends on the extent of your injury. Uh, for first degree injury where there is just partial thickness burning, uh, um, correct, Partial thickness, freezing, and just mild symptoms. 
really get out of the cold, get the temperature back up, and supportive care is generally enough. Now, for all degrees of injury out in the field, when you're meeting before you get to the hospital, for any of these injuries, really get out of the cold. Don't sustain any more damage, but uh, rewarming is not recommended unless you're sure that you're not going to be exposed to the cold again, because that refreezing injury is just as devastating, if not more devastating than the initial injury. Uh, now, second degree injury and third degree injury get a little trickier. Treatment is really just rapid rewarming once you get to a hospital or once you get to a place where you know you're not going to be uh, exposed to cold temperatures again. And as that body part gets rewarmed, it's going to be very, very painful. So a lot of hydration and a lot of pain control is absolutely um, crucial to, to, to this stage of the treatment. Because can you imagine when that that finger or toe or hand that was essentially frozen, being you, you had no sensation in that foot, and now uh, sensation is back, and now your body knows how awful the injuries are. Uh, that is a really, really painful experience, and most of our emergency department texts recommend a copious pain medication in addition to rapid rewarming. Now, third and fourth degree frostbite, once that tissue is declared itself, then surgery might be necessary because some of that tissue might not come back. And surgery is usually delayed quite a long time, I think up to weeks, before the tissue is declared itself either viable or not viable. And the reason for that is really something that's up my alley, actually, an infection, is dead tissue harbors bacteria and fungi really, really well, but cannot fight it off. So if you don't get rid of that dead tissue, what you're going to be left with is a little reservoir of stuff that can start to eat away at the rest of your body (laughs) once it finishes off what viable tissue is left in the dead stump. You know, interestingly, um, prophylactic antibiotics, the role of prophylactic antibiotics, meaning giving antibiotics before an infection takes place, it's still a little controversial because, in general, doctors don't like to give antibiotics unnecessarily because of side effects and building up resistance. But there is evidence that you might be patients might be exposed are more at risk for infections once they have these stage three and stage four uh, frostbites. Ward, you're making a really good point about antibiotics. It used to be that you know antibiotics were this beautiful miracle that, oh, man, we can prevent infection. Infection in, you know, not very long ago was easily the number one killer of every single human being on this planet, you know, for various reasons. If you burned some flesh or if you injured some flesh, and or even if you got a cut or a wound, it was, we were very quick to get on top of it with antibiotics and suppress any infection that might happen. But we're learning more and more that the body will take care of itself if it's not already infected and if you provide enough wound care that is cleaning it out getting rid of the dead tissue if you do this kind of stuff and protecting the wound and in this case of a freezer burn if you if you get to frostbitten tissue and get rid of that dead tissue in a, in a fast enough time then those antibiotics really don't add anything to the picture. 
Um, on top of that, for antibiotics to get delivered, you know, when you take them by mouth or if you inject them into the, the intravenously, if you get them into the bloodstream, those antibiotics have to be delivered to the site of infection. And in this case, when we talk about frostbite, by definition, we're talking about places where the blood flow has ceased. So the antibiotic can't even be delivered. This is actually a really interesting thing, especially when you're talking about frontier medicine, in that we a lot of these treatments we're discussing are all great if you are in the safety of a hospital. But out on the battlefield or transporting somebody to the hospital, what can you do, especially if you don't have a lot of antibiotics? Now, Ward, I know that you and I both share a love of wilderness medicine. Do you know one of the things that can be used to debride out in the field? Ooh, um, no. Do do, do you have any ideas? Well, I've got one answer, but I feel like it just might bug you a little. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, God. Is is this going to be an actual bug? It's maggots. Oh, yuck. Uh, Because maggots will eat... Now, this is is not a (laughs) first-line treatment, but in, in part of the wilderness things... And in fact, this was in the story of The Revenant, the... The story The Revenant is based on, the character of Hugh Glass had no real access to medical care as he was carrying out his one-man revenge scheme. But in order to debride tissue, maggots only eat dead tissue, and dead tissue is a breeding ground for disease. So out in the wilderness, they say if you can find any kind of maggots, you actually want to put them, you know, and you are far from a hospital. This should not be your go-to, like, oh, I'll pop some aspirin and throw some maggots on. But... You look for these dead tissues and you take a handful of maggots and put them on and they will keep the area clean and debride it while you are waiting to receive active medical care. Oh, you know, uh, <laughs> maggots are being used <laughs> awesome. in modern medicine as well. Disinfected. You know, they are, absolutely. They are actually used in uh, debriding necrotic wounds. I, I was just about to say that. I think, Josh, that in controlled conditions where we know that the maggots themselves are clean, um, not that they have to be terribly clean, they actually don't transmit disease very often at all, but just in the same way we had talked about using leeches to get the blood flow back into like a finger, when you reattach a finger, we use leeches now to uh, siphon off the excess blood. We do the same thing. Old school medicine being applied in the modern era one great example of this is maggots on a wound right in your intensive care unit. Now, for a majority <laughs> of our uh, listeners and for us, really, if we end up in mammoth and end up with a little bit of frostbite, the treatment of choice is wrapping, <laughs> keeping that keeping that extremity, whichever exposed extremity, clean, dry, and warm, and getting it getting it out of uh, out of the cold. And in extreme cases, stage second degree or third degree uh, frostbite, you might want to put that in the splint so it's not moving around. Once the skin is thawed, and, and the important thing is, is you don't thaw until you are in the hospital or mm-hmm. unless you are, you know, days and days away from being able to get to one because you the biggest danger is going to be that freeze, thaw, refreeze injury. So once the skin does thaw, you want to protect it from any further injury and re-exposure to cold. You want to elevate it. You want to splint it. You want to give these sterile, non-stick dressings. Because remember, that skin is going to develop a lot of fluid, and the last thing you want is to rip the skin off with the bandage. And that's because these bandages should be changed about two to four times a day. And every time you change the bandage, you're looking for any signs of infection. 
A lot of hospitals recommend obtaining a photographic record on admission 24 hours after admission and serially every two to three days until discharge. So think of it as a lot of leg selfies. You know, you, you want your Instagram account very active if you have frostbite. A duck leg, so to speak. <laughs> I don't know if you can do a duck leg. Yeah, duck leg. <laughs> hashtag ice selfie, hashtag frost nip. So now, Ward, you left out one of the best parts of frostbite treatment and certainly I am not encouraging and we are not encouraging anybody to get frostbite, but this is one of the few medical conditions where the treatment is a jacuzzi. Oh, I love jacuzzis. I, just, I wish I didn't have to have a frostbite every time. <laughs> well, you can use you can use jacuzzis without frostbite, but hot tub treatments, much like hot tub time machines, are great in this season. So one of the ways, remember we talked about the development of this frostbite treatment protocol that was discovered in the 60s and then refined up in the 80s. Focus on rapidly rewarming the affected area and you want to rewarm it with moist, not dry heat. So you don't want to use fires, you want to use something warm. Well, what's the best way to rapidly rewarm something in warm water? You drop it into circulating water, like a whirlpool bath, at a temperature of about 37 to 39 degrees Celsius. And what do you think, guys? Can you can you convert that to Fahrenheit for me? Or do I need to do it for oh, you? Oh, I might have to Google that. 40 degrees Celsius, using that formula you gave me, and not typing it into Google at all, is 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Very, very warm, almost sauna-level whirlpool bath. And this circulation of water is going to allow a constant temperature to be applied to the affected area. You know, just like when you cook something, it's continuous heat over the entire surface at the same time. And this warming gets continued for about 15 to 30 minutes or until somebody is thawed, when the distal area of the extremity, the area that was frostbitten, is flushed, meaning shows color. It's soft, meaning it's not wooden, and pliable. You can actually feel some give to it. And a lot of these whirlpool baths will add some antiseptic solution like iodine or chlorhexidine to help sterilize any of the wound. And you do this hydrotherapy daily. So if you do have true frostbite, you have to get in the jacuzzi 30 minutes a day minimum, you know, once or twice a day ongoing for a long time. Can you imagine what what body so, part is frozen, though, that requires you to use a jacuzzi? I just, I shudder at the thought. Well, these warming baths, yeah, sometimes they're just individual hand jacuzzis oh, okay. or foot jacuzzis, okay. but... But yeah, you don't have to dip your entire body. If you're dipping your whole body and you have other, That's other a deep issues. Burn or a deep freeze. Now, there is rewarming injury, and that's something which you're probably more familiar with. Santosh, do you know what goes on with rewarming injuries? So, when you rewarm, what happens is that, what's the easiest way to put it? The blood that was deprived just a little while ago is now, you know, back. It's, it's flooding back into affected area and all of those inflammatory cells which had actually been pissed off because there is injury going on so-called necrosis this particular area just now goes from being cold to becoming inflamed if, if you have inflammation like this now this is where you run into the trouble of pain having redness having swelling and that actually, all the tissue destruction from the inflammation itself can cause quite a bit of damage. And this is where inflamed is really an appropriate term because it will feel as though it's on fire. 
and you can get a lot of edema and swelling as all the fluid that was previously frozen unfreezes and doesn't quite know where to go yet. And this fluid is running everywhere but where it should be. So you get these large, clear blebs, and that is a medical term, bleb. Bleb. B-L-E-B. <laughs> and it'll appear within about 6 to 24 hours if it's a superficial injury and just be filled with clear fluid, which is fluid trying to find its way home. Or you could get hemorrhagic blebs with the more serious deep injuries, and those are filled with blood. And there, it's a more intense form of blister in neither case should you pop it. Let it be, because if you pop it, you're still losing a lot of that necessary fluid, and now you're opening the area up to infection. One of the other things you absolutely should not be rushing to do is surgery on frostbitten tissues. Because here's the thing, it can take weeks to months for frostbitten tissue to sufficiently defrost and be declared viable. So if you rush to cut off a frostbitten area just because it's black or frozen, you may be cutting off viable tissue. So surgery usually won't be performed until at least a minimum of six to eight weeks after the injury. And the area that's affected will usually heal or mummify on its own without surgery. Mummification is exactly what you think it is. It's You, you take on the same appearance as those shriveled Chilean mummies uh, <laughs> with a tendency to shout for Anaxuna Moon and fight Brendan Fraser. <laughs> and, <laughs> nice reference. <laughs> Mummification will give you a line of demarcation about three to six weeks. So three to six weeks after the injury, you go back and you look and any part of you that's going to become mummified will already have happened. The eschar that forms in about one to two weeks after the injury is a shrunken black shell that covers the wound. And that is almost like the world's most intense form of scab because if the frostbite is only superficial, the new skin will appear beneath that blackened eschar and will eventually be able to be cut or fall off if you do get surgery. With a deep injury, the area will self-amputate that's scary. Oh, right. gosh. So, and a new new hand or toe is not going to come out underneath, unfortunately. You know, these are all things which I thought were really neat in terms of, you know, we talk about wilderness medicine, but usually we're referring to jungle or tropical medicine. This is the opposite extreme, wilderness in the cold frontier. And we've learned now about things like maggots and mummification and jacuzzis, all of which I would not have expected to be involved in medical care when we started doing the research for this topic. <laughs> well, I say, Josh, even though you haven't lost any toes or fingers, you earned yourself a jacuzzi uh, <laughs> trip after your two weeks <laughs> up in north of the wall. Eureka is a lovely town about, what, six, seven hours north of San Francisco? Um, because it's so remote, yes. I hardly ever get up there, uh, and also because it's really cold and rainy. Would you give us just a tip? What did you What did you enjoy about your time up there? When I am not treating patients, the closest thing to do in Eureka is to take a scenic drive down about 20, 30 minutes away to visit the Redwoods National Park. And there is a giant redwood tree through which you can drive your car. Uh, you can drive a truck and take a picture, you know, trying not to be run over. Take a picture standing... <laughs> standing in the middle of the road underneath a giant tree that has a tunnel through it. And that is absolutely something worth a detour. There you go. Nice. Yeah. 
So there is there is your just the tip. And you know, in terms of for those of you, we are going to recommend some preventative tips for frostbite yourselves. Get out of the cold. Number one, just get out of the cold. Uh, dress in layers. Avoid any tight-fitting clothing um, because you want to basically avoid sweating or washing your face in extremes of weather uh, because you don't want to cause that insulation effect. So you do want loose, layered clothing because if you start sweating and then that moisture, not only are you losing moisture, it'll stick to you and then you'll insulate and you become like a thermos and even more at risk. Don't rub areas that are frostbitten because the ice crystals that are in your skin will fracture and it'll spread throughout your skin causing these little microemboli. Use wet heat or moist heat to not to dry to rewarm. So go in the jacuzzi, don't sit by the fire and wear mittens instead of gloves. And the reason for that is mittens keep all your fingers together and they get to keep each other company and keep the heat circulating through your whole hand. Gloves separate your digits and can actually speed that isolating freezing process. Uh, that's I, I always forget about the middies to kind of keep the middies nice and toasty. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Facebook, on Squarespace, on Twitter, on Patreon, anywhere podcasts are downloaded. We'd love to hear your reviews, your ratings, and we would love for you to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me. Yeah. <laughs> with me help. With a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories. Thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.